0: Welcome to the Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge Hunter Murphy. And to my left is Judge Jeff Carpenter. Assisting us today is uh, Deputy Clerk Roderick McFarland and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon, we have the case of Woody v. Vickery, um, which is on appeal from Chatham County Superior Court. Um, Have you gentlemen already spoken? Uh, with him and uh, gotten everything all your timing coordinated and okay everything's ready with the clock yes, sir. great great well let's begin how much time did you reserve for a rebuttal if any
1: I would request five minutes your honor May it please the court and the judges of the north carolina court of appeals my name is james ransford i along with my associate cyrus griswold represent the appellants in this matter um, this is the second time this case is on appeal and so i will unless requested i'm not going to spend a lot of time on the facts because i know that um, the court's well aware of those
0: Well, you might give a little bit of background, just for people who are joining us via live stream, if you don't mind.
1: Certainly, certainly, Your Honor. This case involves what initially started out as a quiet title action filed by two separate plaintiffs, Julius William Woody and one of the appellants, Shannon Chad Gaines. Um, Certain documents were filed by Mr. Woody transferring title um, in a piece of, well, Creating a fee interest with a life estate and a piece or two pieces of real estate, um, the pieces of real estate were held in a trust. Mr. Woody, our contention is, sent notice to the trustee, the defendant in this case, uh, Randy Lynn Vickery, that he was revoking his power uh, as trustee in the case, and that therefore Mr. Vickery would have no more ability to manage anything in the trust. Uh, Mr. Vickery, upon receiving notice, removed both parcels of real estate that were in the trust into his own personal name. His rationale for that was to protect Mr. Woody from what he thought of was um, undue influence and misdeeds by Mr. Gaines, as well as the third-party defendants, uh, Kerry Vickery and Donald Askew. Uh, in response to Mr. Uh, Vickery's actions in transferring the deeds, uh, additional correspondence went back and forth between the parties and ultimately when the quiet title action was filed, Mr. Vickery responded by filing his own quiet title action and also asserting multiple claims against uh, Mr. Gaines, appellate Gaines, for violations uh, well, for undue influence and for conversion, among multiple other uh, claims, he, Mr. Vickery, the appellee, also um, added third-party defendants, two third-party defendants, Carrie Vickery and Donald Askew. They are also appellants in this case. Litigation ensued from there, and I guess in 2019, summary judgment was entered uh, in favor of uh, Mr. Vickery, and appeal was taken from that. Um, Our appeal uh, was allowed and the case was remanded to the trial court. Um, Discovery continued in the case and ultimately um, an order from Judge Bedour was issued in early March of 2022 finding that uh, a settlement agreement between Mr. Vickery and the Plaintiff Julius Woody um, had removed any uh, standing that our client, Mr. Gaines, had towards uh, any of the real estate. And that portion of the argument, Mr. Griswold is going to deal with, and he knows that a lot better than I do. Um, but also what happened at that time was that a motion for sanctions was filed by Mr. Vickery against all three appellants. A hearing was had on the motion for sanctions, and after the hearing, uh, a few months later in June of 2022, Judge Bedore issued an order granting the sanctions requested by Mr. Vickery, and the sanctions struck the answers of the three um, appellants, and it also entered an order of default, uh, as well as ordering attorney's fees related to uh, the hearing on the motion for sanctions. And we entered notice of appeal of that uh, sanctions order under two Different basis. One, that the trial court lacked jurisdiction to entertain the motion for sanctions because it had been divested of jurisdiction by the prior appeal of the subject matter jurisdiction ruling by Judge Badur. And the second issue, and the one that I'm going to address first, if that pleases the court, is that the sanctions order was an abuse of discretion.
0: Well, Mr. Uh, Vickery contends that. You're raising a lot of arguments now before this court that you did not argue before the trial court. How do you respond to that contention?
1: Yes, Your Honor. I think that in front of the trial court, before the motion, well, during the motion's hearing on the motion for sanctions, both parties, the appellee and the appellants, agreed that there was a pending Fifth Amendment violation or a pending motion in limine to Uh, preclude any mention of the appellant's assertion of their Fifth Amendment rights at a trial. And both parties agreed that that was an evidentiary ruling for a trial court. And so it's my contention that both parties acknowledging that, it certainly would be in front of the the trial court entertaining the motion for sanctions since it was the same court to understand that this was a jury argument, this, this Fifth Amendment, the invocation of the Fifth Amendment and whether a jury should even hear it. So I think that alone put the argument in front of the trial court and reserved the argument that this was something a jury needed to look into, was, you know, the reason the Fifth Amendment had been asserted, not simply a motion for sanctions for discovery violation, which I don't think asserting the Fifth Amendment uh, in the face of a RICO claim is, can be a discovery violation. Well. Is, I don't think is there any is.
2: case law on that one way or another that, that's one of the things I, I, I've struggled with is like I understand your contention um, in a vacuum that you know there can't be this punishment for for use of of your fifth Amendment rights but is there any case law saying that the trial court can't consider that and considering all bad faith to look at everything in the totality of the circumstances is, is there any case law one way or the other on that issue
1: I, I have not been able to locate that, I, you know, at the hearing, my fellow counselor, <laughs> that was the announcement he made to the trial court as well, that he would searched high and low. Um, I think that probably in looking for whether or not that existed, we haven't found case law because when someone asserts their Fifth Amendment privilege in the face of criminal allegations, and in this case, RICO allegations, two things generally occur, one, a motion to compel this file seeking the testimony, and in which case a trial court doesn't necessarily compel the deponent to answer the questions, rather the deponent is given the option of, hey, you do not have to waive your Fifth Amendment privilege. However, we're not going to let you frustrate discovery. So at this deposition, when we resume it, you got to make a choice, and that is your choice to make. You're not compelled one way or the other, but there will be sanctions. If you continue to assert your Fifth Amendment privilege, but this case—and I think that's—that didn't happen here—and there wasn't a there wasn't a motion for protective order—and if there had been that as well, uh, if that had been denied by the trial court, I think that would have, in effect, had the same um, legal implication as a motion to compel.
0: And, and is this what you argued before the trial court?
1: Uh, I was not before the trial court, Your Honor. But I, no, Your Honor. At, that before the trial court i think the argument was this fifth amendment is an evidentiary ruling and if it's an evidentiary ruling then that's a question that a trial court needs to consider whether the jury's going to hear the evidence or not hear the evidence and i think that that put the trial court and the sanctions hearing on notice that look we don't we don't think this is this is a jury argument this is not for the trial court to look at to sanction us. We had a good faith basis for taking it, for for asserting the Fifth Amendment privilege, but in any event, this is reserved for the trial court in a motion in limine. And I think both parties agreed to that at the hearing, and so I think that's certainly implicit in the argument before the trial court was this idea that whether or not the Fifth Amendment and the intent behind it That was an evidentiary ruling that, I mean, a trial court certainly could have agreed with the appellant's motion in limiting.
0: Well, how do you reconcile this with your client's um, testimony at deposition that that he was pleading the fifth? Something to the effect of, and you correct, please correct me. Um, Something to the effect of he was pleading the fifth basically to see what the other side's evidence was first, to gain an advantage in the litigation.
1: Yes, Your Honor. I I don't think that's what the dip. I I think my fellow counselors' brief said that's what the deposition testimony is, but that's not what the deposition testimony is. I think that was taking it out of context to assert it that way. First and, and foremost, unless the appellants had said directly, yeah, I mean, well, forget that. There was a criminal allegation asserted intent one way or the other, if someone had the privilege, they had the privilege. If there was a collateral issue related to it, that they were going to get some benefit from it, it I don't think it, you could prevent someone from invoking their Fifth Amendment privilege in the face of a RICO allegation simply because they may gain some sort of unfair advantage, which, as I'll address, I don't think they did, and I don't think that that happened. But the deposition testimony, the appellant Chad Gaines, was asked specifically You you took your deposit, well, asked, the assertion was made to him. You took your deposition so that you could scout out the evidence in this case and decide whether or not you wanted to testify. In fact, he was asked. uh, This is on page uh, 13 of the transcript 2. So the purpose of you taking the 5th was so that you could gather up all the evidence in this case so you could make a decision about whether or not you would testify. And the answer for Mr. Gaines was, I don't, not in your terms, no. And Mr. Gaines.
0: Well, it continues there after that though, right? It doesn't does. It, doesn't it continue?
1: He says, I'll get back to that RICO claim in particular, what was going to be the outcome of it? If we had known, if indeed there was going to be criminal investigation or something like that, or it was not, that would have been a determination if we pled the fifth that day or not. But he's not talking in that case about what the evidence that was going to develop, or at least my reading of that, he's talking about whether or not an investigation is gonna come down from the attorney general's office. They, later in the deposition, they talk about, he's been given, there's a discussion that he's been given notice, when I say he, Mr. Gaines, that the conduct has been reported to the attorney general's office, and I think the addendum to the record on appeal, which were the letters back and forth between Mr. Lee, who represented the appellants at the trial court level, and Mr. Reese, who uh, represents the appellees here and at the trial court level, I thought that was a very good discussion and dispels any notion of some sort of bad faith attempt to utilize what I don't think anyone says is a privilege that was not allowable in this case. I I think Mr. Lee, I think his, his letters to Mr. Reese were in good faith, and I think a plain reading of them and a consideration in the record on appeal in this case, show that this argument about someone scouting evidence and wanting to delay things, by the time the, no- the depositions were noticed, almost all of the litigation, the discovery, depositions, all of that had occurred. In fact, the cl- the appellants had previously made themselves available for deposition, which was canceled and rescheduled by appellee's counsel at the same time that a motion to amend the complaint and add uh, RICO claims were added, and that was the first time any of this Fifth Amendment, this issue, ever came up. They, the appellants had not uh, obstructed anything at that point. They'd answered the complaint. They'd served discovery responses. Well,
0: oh, oh, I, I mean, excuse me. Yes, Ron. Aren't there some other issues here too? I mean, you said they served discovery responses. Well, you know, wasn't one of the responses a picture of paper bags or something full of receipts?
1: there was your honor there was
0: I mean is it do you contend that that's an adequate response to a discovery request
1: the trial court judge certainly didn't think so and so I don't think I can challenge that on a, I think whether or not seasonable discovery occurred I'm not going to win this argument on abuse of discretion trying to tackle that and so my arguments here involve the fifth amendment and the view of deposition testimony that I think the trial judge, again, invading the province of the jury, the entire motion for sanctions, or the order itself, was clear that all of these things were connected. And so if you have a ruling from the trial court that has accepted two things to be discovery violations that are not discovery violations, and then you have additional findings by the trial court that involve seasonable discovery, supplementation, Those are two different analysis for me to argue to this court, because under one, you're looking at a clear rule, do you provide discovery on time? Yes, I do, or yes, I did not. uh, These other two issues, this alleged bad faith issue on the Fifth Amendment, and this alleged manufacturing of evidence, those are not discovery violations within the rules themselves. Those are, these things happen all the time in in trials, these are questions as to credibility that I think it would be, or it is dangerous for a trial court to wade into a situation of reading a deposition and determining what it thinks someone's motive was in asserting a Fifth Amendment privilege. A jury could totally disagree with that and should be given the opportunity to do so. And the same thing with deposition testimony. I mean, to accept the fact that the judge can read parts of a deposition, not even the whole deposition, I mean, the record has a few pages of it, and decide, well, this must be what happened at this deposition, and therefore, I'm going to sanction this individual for what they allege, and in Mr. Lee's filing to the trial court uh, uh, arguing against sanctions, he said this was a mistake. The photograph, the the testimony was a mistake. Happens all the time. Now, does that look good at trial?
0: Um, I don't understand. You mean the photograph that was supposed to be from 2017 that had the milk with the expiration date on it from 2018 or something? Is that yes, what you're referring to? Yes, Your Honor. That, okay. And so I, I couldn't, I didn't know if you were referring to that as the mistake or the, the picture of the bags with the receipts as a mistake.
1: Well, the, I think the photograph with the date is what the trial court and its order focused on this idea that somehow evidence had been manufactured. Mm-hmm. This was not a case where an individual uh, photoshopped something and brought it in and said this is what happened and it was determined later that something had been created out of thin air. This was a photograph that had been taken. Testimony was asked, or the appellant, Chad Gaines, was asked when did this occur? He gave the wrong date. Does that mean that he was manufacturing evidence or does that mean that he was confused or mistaken? He's sitting in a a room being deposed by another lawyer. Perhaps he's nervous. I mean, these are all things traditionally within the province of the jury. Not to mention, I mean, if, if we have rule 30E that allows an radish heap to make substantive changes to a deposition, allowing the trial court, before 30 days have even expired, to come in and analyze parts of the deposition and draw its own conclusions about whether someone was or was not manufacturing evidence if they cited the wrong date to when an action occurred, I think that's a very dangerous precedent. I don't think that's the role of the trial court. There are instances where someone says something untruthful at a, at a deposition, they can be sanctioned. And I would agree with that. In one of the cases that we cited for jurisdiction in our brief, that issue was discussed, the, X, the Essex case. And in that case, the, and I can I, just one moment. In that case, as Mr. Griswold is trying to find the citation for us, the deponents admitted that they lied at their deposition. They formally admitted it. And so in that case, the sanctions order, which was upheld, which should have been upheld, the court wasn't trying to figure out what someone's motive was, were they manufacturing evidence, this or that. The person formally admitted it. They were not telling the truth at the deposition. They formally admitted after they were caught trying to remove documents from a warehouse. So there are situations where a trial court could look at deposition testimony as a basis for sanctions. Furthermore, I mean, if somebody went to a deposition and was abusive and said, I'm I'm not going to answer your questions, there's another example. But someone's credibility as to answers at the deposition itself, that's something completely different. Uh, Anytime someone's impeached at trial, would the trial court be in a position to stop the trial, strike someone's answer, and enter default because someone had been impeached? I mean, there's a difference between being impeached, being confused, nervous, and true manufacturing of evidence. And I don't think we had that last thing in this case, something for a, a, a jury to decide absent other facts in this case that would somehow bring an admission from one of the appellants that they had done something and they were sorry for it. It's not what he said at all. Mr. Gaines was mistaken. His lawyer said he was mistaken. Happens all the time. That's why we have Rule 30E. You can make changes. Are there ways that the appellee gets to deal with someone changing their testimony at a deposition? Absolutely. The Perry Mason moment, you get to cross examine the Perry. you get to burn them up on the stand. And the thing we live for, we you know, and it never goes as well as we think it's going to go. Um, but you pull that deposition out, and you unseal it, and you walk up, and you, you know, and it, that's how that's done. But to ask a trial court to come in and look at not even a whole deposition, only certain pages of it, um, and it's, which is odd because every other deposition seems to have been comp- produced here except for that one, uh, and say, well, they must have been manufacturing evidence, and there was this bad faith intent to use the Fifth Amendment. And I know that because they answered the amended complaint and they made themselves available for deposition and they previously answered the complaint. I mean, if you read Mr. Lee's letter, he was clear. Listen, just give us a little time to understand what's going on here. We don't even know if your amended complaint to assert RICO claims is even going to be granted. Just asking for a little time to get our hands around this. I don't think that that was any sort of abuse. And I think this idea that what Mr. Gaines was doing was scouting the evidence, it's just a theory. That's a jury argument. And, and that's if a trial court even lets the Fifth Amendment come in, a, a trial judge could look at the, the proceedings in this case and say, you know what, this all happened before the complaint was amended. They made themselves available for deposition. Nah, I'm not letting the jury hear that. I think under 403, that's more prejudicial. We're going to get the facts of this case and try it. We're not gonna have side issues like that distract the jury from the real issues. And so what we're seeking in this case is a remand for the trial court to be able to further analyze its sanctions order in light of what we hope is a ruling that by invading the province of the jury, it was an abuse of discretion because it took the case away from the jury. I mean, if you think about it, the appellee asserted and amended complaints a RICO violation and is still prosecuting that case. In response to that, the appellants asserted their Fifth Amendment violation. And now a trial court has said, well, you were accused of RICO violations and you're still being accused of RICO violations and you were never ordered to testify, but when you did take your Fifth Amendment initially in the face of the RICO allegations, that's bad faith and I'm gonna sanction You by defaulting you and therefore by asserting your Fifth Amendment, you're going to admit that you committed RICO violations. You're going to admit that you committed felonious conduct.
0: What's the status of the RICO claim right now?
1: Uh, Still pending. And I, I I hope this case gets tried because I feel like it gets painted one way, but uh, and it makes. The appellants seem like these bad people, but at the end of the day, the only person to ever sue Mr. Vickery, besides my client, Mr. Gaines, was Mr. Woody. He did it twice, different sets of attorneys. But all this, this, these arguments that there was this plot to subvert discovery and everything, it just, I think it, it clouds the, and the record being so voluminous. But at the end of the day, you have someone who asserted a RICO violation, and that's what brought about a Fifth Amendment, but it never happened in the case. And there had been ample discovery. What did Mr. Lee do? Mr. Lee canceled the appellee's deposition in good faith. He said, look, I'm not going to take your your client's deposition. How are you scouting the evidence if you assert the fifth lawfully but cancel the other deposition? He wasn't scouting the evidence. I mean, the, the facts, and I tried to set those out in the brief, and I didn't do a great job, but I think that really tells the story of what happened. Almost all of the discovery was done. And by the time Mr. Lee got his hands around the RICO argument, his clients answered the amended complaint.
0: Well, Mr. Vickery says that, you know, a lot of the discovery was produced, you know, years late. Um, How do you respond to that?
1: I think that any discovery that was not seasonably produced gives a trial judge the authority to sanction someone. In this case, you can't separate the sanctions for that from the sanctions for the Fifth Amendment and the sanctions for this manufacturing evidence, because the trial court was clear. It's a combination of all of these things.
2: So so the remedy from our court would be to to remand, if if we found part of them were supported, that that there wouldn't necessarily be a, a remand involved, not just an affirming based on the the other findings
1: Correct your honor just to, to review, <laughs> there's another huge issue in this case <laughs> I mean there was a I don't think there's jurisdiction for the trial court to even enter default based on the record But that wasn't argued below and again. I don't get to argue that now Let but me ask
2: it, you just another question we're about to get into your rebuttal time Let me ask you a question about our jurisdiction. I'm looking at page four of your your brief And we're talking about the March 23rd order and your, your statement as to appeal jurisdiction of 7A27B1 for, for a final judgment. Given that this only disposed of the plaintiff's case against the defendant, not the entirety of the case, not the counterclaims, not third party, how is this a, a final judgment giving us jurisdiction under 7A27B1?
1: And this is in response to the appeal of the standing order?
2: Yes, sir, the, a, a the dismissal judgment. order.
1: Yes, sir. yes, Your Honor. It's not. We were we were mistaken. That was the wrong standard to have asserted. Um, Mr. Griswold filed up. I don't know if I'm.
0: You're you're into your rebuttal time, but you can keep. It's up to you whether you want to use your rebuttal time to or not.
1: I I would like to preserve my rebuttal time. Thank you.
2: Uh, Thank
0: you.
3: may it please the court, <clears throat> I'd like to go ahead and start with the subjects that the court seems to be most, have been most interested in so far, which is uh, the sanctions order. First I'd like to be clear that they have not challenged the ability of the trial court to use bad faith invocation of the Fifth Amendment as a basis for sanctions. They haven't challenged that. The only thing they've challenged with respect to the Fifth Amendment is that as a matter of a factual matter. They contend it wasn't in bad faith, Um, and the court is certainly entitled to determine, based on the record evidence, that it was in bad faith. And they have not challenged it under the Constitution or any other basis uh, that the basis for that finding. Judge Murphy asked before if there's any case law out there about bad faith use of the Fifth Amendment, and I would say. I believe there is, it's mostly federal law on that issue, but it wasn't briefed because they weren't challenging the court's ability to base its sanctions determination, at least in part, on that bad faith. So we haven't um, had the opportunity to brief that for the court. But I do believe that there is case law out there that, that says that using the Fifth Amendment has to be done within certain parameters, and good faith is one of them. Uh, including circumstances that show that they have a reasonable uh, apprehension that there is a potential criminal violation out there for which the Fifth Amendment would be, would be used.
0: And the basis for the bad faith finding here would be what?
3: Would be that he testified that the purpose for invoking the Fifth Amendment was to delay uh, um, proceedings until he was able to determine what the evidence was. And we have a number of quotes in here, Your Honor, from his testimony in which, Um, he testified, first of all, that as a police officer for 21 years, until a person knows, quote, what the evidence is, you certainly don't want to talk in that manner. Mr. Gaines also testified that he wanted to avoid testifying, quote, until I knew the facts of what they were accusing us of. Um, he testified that he wanted, did I know what evidence you were trying to produce to the DA's office and what I was truly being accused of? No. When asked whether or not he was he was um, wait, wanted to see the evidence before you decided whether you would testify, his answer was yes. So the trial court clearly had a factual basis to determine that the use of the Fifth Amendment was done in bad faith as a delay tactic, and the standard here is important, Judge, for uh, for overturning the motion for sanctions. The court would have to find that the judge. Uh, the judge's decision was manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it couldn't have been the product of a reasoned decision. I don't believe that anything that they have said collectively or individually can um, rise to that level. Um, Additionally, Your Honor, there's this contention, and I'm, I'm failing maybe to partly understand this, there's a contention that the Fifth Amendment question should have been a jury issue. I don't understand that. They had a motion in limine that was intended specifically to keep from the jury the fact that they had pled the Fifth Amendment in their deposition. And the purpose of that, Your Honor, was to avoid having the presumption attached to that testimony that had they answered truthfully, it would have gone against them. So to now come here and say that that was a question to be left to the jury. First off, I don't know how you ask the jury a question about that. Uh, I don't know if that's supposedly some kind of credibility issue for the jury but certainly they were trying to keep it from the jury for a very specific reason. Um, and, and and I think it's important your honor important factually. There are deposition there are written discovery re- responses that they provided and the record pages are 1181 to 87, 1332 to 36, 1356 to 62 in which we asked each of them to detail any conversations they had with anybody about the facts and circumstances of this case, the claims or defenses. And they gave almost verbatim exact responses uh, to that, and you you can look at them. But what is not there is any discussion whatsoever that when they arrived at Mr. Woody's property, he was living in squalor and he was besieged by scammers. that that was the reason that they felt they needed to take over his life and move on to his property nothing about that the only time that story came out was after they had pled the fifth six or seven months late actually nine months later basically when they submitted affidavits to the court in opposition to a preliminary uh, motion for an injunctive injunction and at that point is the first time that we hear that the reason they did all of this was because of the condition of his his home and because of the scammers. And if you look at those affidavits, affidavits, they are almost rebuttals of the evidence that was developed before then, a lot of it during that gap, um, from other witnesses, from Dr. Corvin who had done a mental examination of Mr. Woody and produced a detailed report in February of that year. Um, After they pled the fifth and which it clearly informed their decision-making about how they were going to proceed and defend this case Because none of that was in their discovery answers before they pled the fifth So there's clearly evidence that this delay Was a tactic and it provided them an opportunity to to mold their story and get it straight Um, the manufactured evidence your honor this isn't about how he what his testimony was. The the basis for the sanction concerning manufacturing evidence wasn't that he testified incorrectly about the photograph. It was that he took photographs, multiple photographs, a year after they moved onto the property and then passed them on to us and passed them off as if that they were a year they were taken in 2017 and that they represented the condition of the premises at that time, when in fact. They were taken in 2018, a year later. That's the basis for the sanction regarding manufacturing evidence. It was actual manufacturing evidence. After the complaint had been filed, after the amended complaint had been filed, after our answers had been filed and counterclaims and third-party claims, all of that had taken place um, before Mr. Gaines apparently took these additional photographs and then inserted them into the rest of the photographic evidence, sort of in the middle and produced it to us without comment That it
0: is a discovery response. Am I correct?
3: It was a discovery response, yes, Your Honor. Um, and ultimately, we fortunately were able to notice the date on the milk jug in the refrigerator that tipped us off that there was something going on. Because had we not done that, they would have passed that off to a jury as if it was evidence from 2017. And so the court clearly had uh, reasons and was not arbitrarily deciding that this was sanctionable conduct.
2: Let me ask you a question. To the- it gets a little bit into what the appellant's arguing on, on this, is the use of they. Um, some of these documents seem to have been produced just by Mr. Gaines and not by the third party defendants. And a lot of it turns on his testimony, his photographs. Is there there's something in these findings that's not challenged that says did have this conspiracy and they were all working together on that. that that's where I can't figure well, out where the, to draw this line between just because they had a, com- a combined defense doesn't mean they know everything that Mr. Gaines knew. And that, that's where I'm having trouble drawing the lines at the trial court. I'm not sure he, he, the trial court kind of insinuated those lines, but I, I didn't see a finding fact definitely drawing that line or or showing that Miss Vickery or and uh, Mr. aq were like actively contributing to these false knowingly false uh, responses or knowingly manufactured responses. that that's where I'm 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 having the, the biggest trouble um, you know connecting the, the dots there.
0: And, and I joined in his question, although I think I, I see it you know, I would wonder more as a unified course of conduct rather than, make, than a conspiracy. But, um, but I have the same question.
3: Sure, you're, and, and I, under, I think I understand the question. And first off, let me just say that they had every opportunity to ask the court, to, to argue to the court, that some of this conduct was not, it was not unified. And that if there were going to be sanctions, that the sanctions should be parceled out according to who did what. They didn't argue any of that. We argued, because it was our motion, we argued they were all in it together. They were all doing it, they all knew about it because they had a common attorney. They were all benefiting from the same discovery violations. And and let me just point out to rules 33 and 34, which are not limited to information or documents actually in the possession of an individual respondent. Rule 33 requires a party who's asked to furnish information to furnish such information as is available to the party. And there's case law that interprets that to mean if they know about it, even though it's not their information or they don't know it firsthand, they need to identify it. None of that was identified on part of, by any of these folks. Rule 34 requires them to produce material in an agent or attorney's hands. According to them, much if not all of this information was in their attorney's hands. It was in their common attorney's hands. And each one of them had a duty to ensure that it was produced, um, whether or not Mr. Gaines took the photos, they all referenced the photos. They all produced them and identified them in discovery responses. There was no, they didn't parcel out individual responses. Their responses are almost identical in all respects, especially when it came to producing documents. It was just, here's the stuff from our client, all, all our clients, so there was no basis for the court to try and distinguish between the conduct of one, two, or three of these folks and they didn't ask the trial court to had they done that we would have had a discussion about this and maybe you know it would have been an interesting discussion to get into the attorney client privilege kind, kinds of issues that that probably would have would have brought out but it is reasonable for the court to have inferred based on what was before it that they were all doing it together they were all sued under a conspiracy theory and they were all represented by the same attorney they were all producing virtually identical discovery responses, and all producing the documents. So, Your Honor, I think it's reasonable for the court to have determined, based on what was argued to it, and what was presented to it, and what was in the record, the very voluminous record, that they had all done it, participated to some degree, if not at all, but that they were all to be suffering the same sanction. And, Your Honor, they have not provided a single case that suggests that these defendants who were sued uh, under a conspiracy theory, couldn't be held jointly and severally jointly liable for discovery violations that benefited all of them, um, and so we would contend that they've left that issue on the table as well as a number of these other issues. That is, there, is
0: there a case law in which defendants have been held jointly liable for discovery violations?
3: There is case law on that, Your Honor. We cited in a footnote in our brief. Um, it's as to monetary sanctions, but it goes to the same principle. Um, now. I'd I con- I'd like to go ahead and move on um, to the other issue, which is Mr. Gaines's interlocutory appeal. Um, they have completely failed to show uh, grounds for interlocutory appeal to this court. Uh, they've acknowledged they had that wrong in their brief. They filed a petition for cert late yesterday. I, I've only had a limited time with it, but the grounds— I just that-
2: saw it about three minutes ago.
3: So. Right. And, and so the grounds— that they have asserted for interlocutory uh, appeal or a substantial right is that they are due uh, a right to a jury trial. Um, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be able to to completely uh, respond to that given how much time I've had with it.
2: You cited, I, I was looking briefly at your uh, memo of additional authority, which looks like it precipitated the, the petition yesterday. And, and sorry, I'm, I'm trying to. Well, my case, but you cite to the case of Larson versus, I think, Black Diamond, which stood for the principle that it, it wouldn't be proper to allow a party to add or, or change their um, approach in a reply brief. Would it be your contention that by trying to do it by petition uh, for writ at this point is basically the equivalent of, of what was in Larson in the reply brief once it was raised? by the appellee in, in the brief?
3: I, I absolutely would contend that that's what they're attempting to do here, even later than a reply brief. I have to concede that the rule lets the court, gives the court discretion on the, on this petition, but that's what I believe that they have attempted to do. Um, but even if the court considers it, you know, the, the upshot of this argument is that uh, no court can dismiss a claim um, without depriving that person party of a right to a jury trial even before they have demonstrated a right to a jury trial, I mean, remember, this is a claim. Of, this is a case about whether the individual actually has standing to bring a claim at all. And now the argument is that this court should hear it as an interlocutory appeal because it deprives him of the substantial right of a jury trial. Well, that's the, that's the ultimate issue. He doesn't have a jury trial uh, right if he um, didn't have standing in the first place. And so we contend, your honors, that uh, that 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 that's not even remotely possibly a standard, and, and we have to acknowledge, look at the, the, the issue. The issue is not whether or not a substantial right has been deprived. It's whether or not a substantial right would be deprived if it wasn't immediately considered on appeal. In other words, we couldn't have let that go all the way to a final judgment, appealed, and then have it come be reversed, potentially. That's what they certainly could have done that, and they would not have been deprived of a jury trial. Secondly, a jury trial is only is only required for issues of fact. And their own petition states, on page 7, that the determinations of whether appellant Gaines had standing to assert his quiet title claim and whether his claim is now moot are purely questions of law and do not require further factual development. So I don't even understand the argument that they are being deprived of a jury trial right when the right to a jury trial applies only to to disputes of material fact, and yet in the same petition they're contending there are no factual issues. It is a legal issue alone. Now substantively on the standing and mootness issue, uh, I have to note from the outset that Mr. Gaines has no standing, never had it, because he has not shown an actual ownership interest in the property at issue. The June 2017 deed, which is uh, in the record at page 449 to 450, from Mr. Woody to Mr. Gaines, conveyed nothing. If you look at it carefully, the first page states that it's being granted in fee simple so long as the conditions set forth here and after are satisfied. And then there's a whole conditions, set of conditions and exceptions, including that for so long as grantor and Annie Jean Thrift shall live, grantee shall provide any necessary support, care, or assistance for their personal and financial needs. Number five, following that is, upon compliance with the above, and if grantor shall not have previously conveyed the property prior to his death, the property is conveyed to grantee. That's the strangest deed and fee simple that I've ever heard. It actually conveys nothing except potentially upon Mr. Woody's death. Mr. Woody is still alive. But more importantly, Mr. Woody has settled his claims with Mr. Vickery um, by dismissing his quiet title action and agreeing in the settlement agreement that Mr. Vickery, A, holds title in his own name to the property and B, will remain the, the title holder of the property for and hold it for the benefit of Mr. Woody until Mr. Woody passes away. And so Mr. Woody has effectively transferred the property or at least ratified a transfer of the property as he was permitted to do in the very deed that they're contending is central to their entire case. So Mr. Gaines never had standing to bring this case for that reason.
2: If I'm understanding the, the deed correctly, your contention would be that it was either some type of Contingent remainder, or and that contingency has come and gone now with the transfer. So, no matter what, there's nothing that would eventually that remainder interest, or whatever we want to call it, will never vest.
3: It will never vest, Your Honor. I, I don't know that I call it a remainder because that suggests there was actually something transferred, and I don't believe under this deed anything was actually transferred, but whatever he thinks he's got he can't possibly have it can never vest because the property Mr. Woody has acquiesced to the status quo in which Mr. Vickery will remain title holder and will take the property for himself after Mr. Woody uh, passes away.
0: So, so it's your contention then that gains interest in the property is derivative of Woody's.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely derivative. There, there never was any individual. He couldn't have done it without Mr. Woody's um, without Mr. Woody. Uh, and at the time, How do you Um, respond to their estoppel-by-deed argument? Well, first off, the deed itself that they're using for estoppel doesn't convey anything. That's number one. Number two, it will never go back to Mr. Woody. It has to go back to Mr. Woody in order for estoppel-by-deed to work. And under the settlement agreement, that can never happen because Mr. Vickery is always going to remain title holder. Additionally, Mr. Vickery, at the time the action was filed, Mr. Vickery had already transferred the property to himself, and so none of the none of the machinations that they had undertaken to get it from him could possibly have worked uh, other than that. And so um, his his interest is hypothetical at best, and the case law is very clear that in order to have standing, one needs to have an acute and particularized injury. It can't be hypothetical. I think the case law actually uses that word, word, but I've never seen a claim that's more hypothetical than this. Um, And I would also point out that, uh, and, and, and we didn't use the word moot when we were down below, but that's clearly what we were talking about in terms of, you know, A, he didn't have standing to begin with, but if he had some kind of standing, it's moot because of the settlement agreement. The court clearly acknowledged that there's no possible way that Mr. Uh, Gaines can now get the property, and so I think the court clearly recognized that as moot. Mootness is an issue that this court can take up and decide on its own, even at this stage, if it appears to the court that the relief cannot be had or granted by any trial court or this court, then it's moot, and the court doesn't decide moot issues. So we would contend that if it wasn't moot down below, it's at least moot here, uh, under the record that's been developed. I do want to mention, Um, the Mangum case, uh, in case that's of interest to the court. Um, The Mangum case is cited by the appellant for the proposition that um, the court, for standing purposes, needs to take all of the allegations in a complaint as true, even when it's looking behind the complaint at the facts. And the Mangum case is a a Supreme Court case. It says what it says, but it is a case that is a zoning appeal on a petition for writ of cert and as the court is well aware zoning appeals have their own body of specific case law there's all kinds of standards that are in some cases statutorily driven uh, that have nothing to do with common law claims like the issues that we're dealing with here or standing in a common law case it's a quasi-judicial proceeding The standard in that type of case is actually that property values are going to be reduced by somebody who owns property. Uh, And in that case, interestingly, the court only accepted one fact from the petition as true, which was that, that the petitioners owned property nearby. Other than that, if you look at the decision, there's columns of other facts and evidence that the court actually used to reach its determination. So even the Supreme Court didn't follow the, the, the suggestion that you just treat all the facts in a petition for cert as true. Because in a zoning appeal, um, it's, you've got a rat record that's been established through the, through the administrative process and the administrative appellate process. And it comes to the court fully formulated by the time it gets to the, to the superior court. And so by necessity, the Superior Court needs to consider allegations in the petition for jurisdictional purposes, if for nothing else, but then also review the whole record. That's, that's why it's there. But that's not the kind of case we're in. We don't have, we didn't come to the Superior Court with a record already developed with all the evidence and all the testimony in the bag. That's not how it works in 99% of the cases. And so we would contend that there's no way that the Supreme Court in, uh, intended to invalidate, A, one of its own decisions, and B, a number of uh, Court of Appeals decisions that state that the court considering standing may treat the allegations in a complaint as true, but not if it goes and it elects to look at other evidence to determine whether or not, as a matter of law, the party has standing. Once they do that, once the judge does that, you're looking at actual evidence. You're not just relying on factual allegations. And that's what the case law has clearly stated and as evidence of what i believe to be the supreme court's intention to simply state a rule limited to zoning appeals and that's what i had asked the court how i'd ask the court if you reach this issue because i obviously don't think you reach any of these issues if the interlocutory appeal um, is not firmly uh, is, there's no jurisdiction for that but if you do i would ask the court to treat that as a rule that is peculiar to zoning appeals and let the supreme court at some point determine how to square we're going to take the issues in a complaint as true, but also consider the evidence as we do. But in this case, we don't think that that's applicable at all. Um, And I think it's reflected in the the actual Magnum holding, holding, in which the court held that we treat the allegations in the petition as true, and also view the quote, the supporting record in light most favorable to the non-moving. So by including this supporting record language, Clearly the Supreme Court is acknowledging that this is a, an issue on a zoning appeal with an actual supporting record and not a rule that would be applicable to other types of claims like the one here or to standing issues in uh, your garden variety common law action. Um, the Supreme Court's Harris v. Matthews uh, decision actually stated that, that the courts, considering standing, look beyond the pleadings. And so to understand this man- Mangum case otherwise would be to assume that the Supreme Court intended to reverse itself, but it made no mention of that whatsoever. Um, So uh, and if this weren't, weren't so, if this weren't true, then our courts would be committed to litigating cases for a long time before they can actually reach a standing question beyond the pleadings even though there may never there was obviously evidence in in existence early on that there was no jurisdiction there. And I don't think that's what our courts intend to do. Um, the and and one consequence, further consequence of the court if the court Let me determines just ask you
2: just a procedural question, just so I, I can make sure I'm clear on this but how big the record is was the deed that you're reading from earlier, from Woody to Gaines, was that Attached or referenced as an exhibit in the complaint?
3: It was referenced in the complaint. Uh, it was not attached. Um,
2: but it was referenced, was it referenced by D book and page or just by date, if you recall? Uh, I don't and recall. I don't, get you was, off course on that. I
3: don't recall, but they did reference D books and pages in that complaint, so it's very possible that they did. But either way, once a document is referenced in a complaint and it's obviously the central part of the allegation, and the court can consider that on a motion to dismiss without converting it to a rule, under Rule 56. So I believe that the court was entitled to, it, it was effectively incorporated into the complaint at that point. Thank you, sir. Uh, um, the consequence of the a consequence of the court um, recognizing a lack of jurisdiction over Mr. Gaines's appeal, it, there's another consequence to that, and which is that, there could not have been an automatic stay. I don't know if they're arguing that anymore. It sounded like they kind of have abandoned the automatic stay issue. But just to be clear, um, especially if uh, the court declines uh, to hear Mr. Gaines's uh, appeal on his issue, um, our courts have held that uh, that it's a non-appealable interlocutory order does not stay uh, the rest of the case. And that's the city of Durham versus Day case. I'd also refer the court to the SED Holdings case which says that um, if the court finds that there's no interlocutory appeal um, then then there is no prejudice to the court going on and having decided another another issue in this case like sanctions. Um, and, and so the the, the, the only conflict, potential conflict that they've actually alleged that might result from the the, the the pursuit of the sanctions order despite the appeal was that somehow there was this Fifth Amendment uh, motion in limine that some for some reason couldn't be heard if, if this case were, Gaines's claim were to come back. I don't think I fully understand that. Again, I don't think the Fifth Amendment question is one that the jury would decide anyway and their motion in limine was to prevent the jury from hearing about their uh, invocation of the fifth amendment so uh, again I don't understand how that becomes a jury question when they have actually decided that they don't want the jury to hear it.
0: Okay, you've um, got less than two minutes left.
3: I, I'm about done your honor thank you. Uh, again I would reiterate the standard here on the motion for sanctions is a very difficult standard for them to meet. Judge Bedore had ample facts before him and reasons to rule the way that he did on the sanctions order. I don't believe that this court has enough before it to find that he may, his decision was manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it could not be uh, the product of a reasoned decision, as I think the court would be required to find.
2: Would you agree that if if any part, if we found that any of the um, the findings were not supported, that we would have I don't, remand? What, I, what Case would stand for the, the prospect that cutting part of a sanctions order, we can allow the most drastic sanction to still stand. I
3: don't have a case, Your Honor, but I would just again the standard is whether or not under the under what's left, would it have been man was it manifest was, was the decision manifestly unsupported by reason. So if the court strikes one finds one suspect issue, um, the question I think then would be um, was it manifestly unsupported by reason or totally arbitrary for the court, despite that, to continue with its sanctions order.
0: Well, so, so you're contending that we can separate the bases for the sanctions without being able to see into the trial court's head and see, you know, what exactly influenced him the most?
3: I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay.
0: Well, we don't know which part was most important or, more, or which part the trial court judge found to be most egregious. And so, if we strike one portion, how can, how can we know that the trial court would have found that, the, that what remained would be sufficient to justify this sanction?
3: Well, I, I suppose we wouldn't know, but let's say if the court struck one issue and there's two left, I think that this court would then be looking at a situation where you would decide, what's le- is what's left sufficient to support the sanctions order without determining that it was therefore manifestly unsupported by reason. It's just a very difficult standard for them to overcome under any of those circumstances.
1: Hello again. Yes. The court's uh, last question to my fellow counselor about how do we decide what influenced what in the trial court sanctions order uh, is a better way of doing my argument than I guess that I did. But I would would go further than that. That if this court were to find that and to accept the argument um, we're putting forth that this question of the Fifth Amendment and the deposition testimony were not discovery violations. That's simply something to be dealt with at trial. Then you're left with, late supplementation of discovery responses but then that's going to ask the question of can you even enter defaults to that without violating a court order and I don't think that you can so then if you remove part of the sanctions order and are left with the remaining part of the sanctions order do you then have to engage with the analysis well are we left with something that even allows default as a sanction for what has occurred and, and I don't think so. I don't think with what would be left. And that's why I think the suggestion on remanding it to the trial court to reconsider these issues, not necessarily overturning it, but giving the trial, you know, I don't think that's such a bad thing to ask in a case where the ultimate sanction is default. There is, you're trying to encourage trial on the merits, and yet, one of the central issues is someone invoking a constitutional privilege resulting in an answer getting stricken without the court first saying, you're going to go back to that deposition and you get to pick one or the other. That's what the jurisprudence in this state is. But we're not arguing those cases because none of that happened. And it would be different otherwise, but it didn't. Protective order would have been a better idea, but you didn't have to. You didn't have to file for a protect, protective order because a motion to stay for a protective order, if denied, again, would have put the appellants in a position that they would then proceed with the depositions at a time when they maybe were not prepared to do that. And so I think asserting your Fifth Amendment privilege without violating a court order, it, it's dangerous to say that it's bad faith to do something that, uh, that someone is constitutionally allowed to do. It's not a discovery violation. One of the other points, very briefly, the tracts of land in here and the deeds that the initial deeds that we're, we're talking about here from Mr. Woody to Gaines, the language is different in the deeds. When you, you have fee simple and then obviously on the second page of the deed, the grantor is reserving a life estate in the property with an unrestricted power to convey tract one during his lifetime, not both tracks. So that unrestrained power is not for all of the land that's in controversy here. And that's a very, I think, important point as to whether or not Mr. or uh, Mr. G- uh, Chad Gaines has standing, and whether he had some interest in the property. Because the deed, in the record, in the complaint, it's clear, its terms are clear. Someone has a fee simple right, and the other individual, Mr. Woody, had a life estate and no, no authority to restrict or revoke as to track two of the land. And if you, we, skim, we, we missed it many times looking at it, but the plain language of the deed on the second page, on the first page, is Mr. Woody granting fee simple to Mr. Gaines, and then it couldn't be clearer on page two that Mr. Woody, the grantor is reserving a life estate in the property, conveyed unrestricted power to convey the tract during his lifetime. But that unrestricted power is to convey tract one. And there are two tracts of land. It's on the face of the deed. And so this theoretical and hypothetical is not theoretical or hypothetical at all. And if a jury agrees with us, I think that property vests. And I think I'm out of my rebuttal. You are. Thank
0: you. Thank you. That concludes oral argument in this matter. Excuse me, sir. Did you have some people? No, Your Honor. I was just making sure oh, you okay. could rise. Okay. <laughs> uh, that concludes oral argument in this matter. We'll take it under advisement. Uh, I want to thank you, counsel, for your excellent arguments. Uh, we may adjourn.